Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hey there, welcome to The Tint. I'm your host, Scott Fellman, and it's time for another foray into the world of aquariums from a slightly different perspective. As you know, we spent the better part of the last, I don't know, like six years talking about seemingly every aspect of the so-called botanical style aquarium that we can think of. We've talked about techniques, approaches, ideas, problems, uh, philosophy, etc., etc. And we spent a lot of time sharing information about wild aquatic habitats that we might be interested in replicating in both form and function. However, I don't think we spent as much time as we should talking about how botanical materials I don't know what word would be proper, but behave in the wild aquatic habitats. So much of this stuff has a lot of implications for those of us who are interested in replicating these habitats in our aquariums. So today, let's just dive into it a little bit. We're probably going to end up digressing back into the <laughs> the whole uh, uh, hobby aspect, but it's interesting to talk about what happens in nature and maybe try to draw some analogies to what we see in our aquariums. Now. Uh, among the trees that reside in flooded forest areas or along streams, uh, let's say in South America or uh, Asia, Southeast Asia, it's a tropical areas of the world. After the fruits mature, which occurs in the flooded forest at the high water levels, the seeds will fall into the water and they may float on the surface or just go right to the bottom for a number of weeks. And interestingly enough, ecologists believe that the seed production of these trees coincides with these flood pulses, which facilitates their dispersal by water movement and by the actions of fish, you know, frugivores, fishes that eat the, the, the fruit and poop out the seeds and they distribute it throughout the forest, which is very interesting. And uh, again, scientists postulate that these floating or sinking seeds, which germinate and establish seedlings after the floodwaters recede, do categorically really well. And they sprout and establish themselves very quickly and are not severely affected by waterlogging in most species. So it's an, ad, it's an, uh, an adaptation to this type of, uh, of ecosystem. Within their cycle of life, the trees take advantage of the water as part of their ecological adaptation. So trees in these uh, areas have developed specialized morphologies to survive this inundation. Uh, advantageous roots, buttress systems, and stilt roots, kind of like the way mangroves work, but a lot of trees that aren't mangroves do the same thing. In a lot of wild aquatic habitats where leaf litter and other allochthonous materials, remember that's materials that are imported into an ecosystem from outside it, where leaf litter and other allochthonous materials accumulate, there are a number of other factors which control the density, the size, and the type of materials which are deposited in these streams and, and bodies of water. The flow rate, for example, uh, determines a lot of things, such as the size of the leaves and the other botanical materials and where in the stream or the flooded forest that they're deposited. I often wonder how much the fallen leaves and seed pods impact the water chemistry in a given, you know, stream, pond, or section of, you know, flooded forest in like the Amazon or whatever. I know that studies have been done in which ecologists have measured dissolved oxygen and conductivity as well as the pH. However, these readings only give us so much information. We hear a lot of discussion about blackwater habitats among hobbyists and the implications for aquariums. And 
part of the game here is understanding what makes Blackwater to begin with, what makes a Blackwater river system to begin with. We often hear things like Blackwater is low in nutrients. Well, what exactly does that mean? Well, one study I stumbled upon concluded that the Rio Negro, a classic Blackwater river, is a Blackwater river in part because of the very low nutrient concentrations of the soils that drain into it. And this has arisen as a result of what they call cycles of weathering, several cycles of weathering, erosion and sedimentation. In other words, there's not a whole lot of minerals and mineral nutrients left in the soils to dissolve into the water to any meaningful extent. Now, black waters in general drain from older rocks in areas like the Negro, resulting from dissolved fulvic and humic substances present in small amounts of suspended sediment. And they typically have a lower pH, like four to six, and a low concentrations of dissolved elements. Yes, highly leached tropical environments where most of the soluble elements are quickly removed by heavy rainfall. That's the definition of a blackwater ecosystem. Now, perhaps that's another reason, besides the discussion we've had on the limitation of light penetration, which is actually factual, uh, maybe that's another reason why aquatic plants are rather scarce in many of these blackwaters. It would appear that the bulk of the nutrients found in these blackwaters are likely dissolved into the aquatic environment by decomposing botanical materials like leaves, branches, etc., but they're not present in the sediments and soils. Why does that sound familiar? Besides color, of course, the defining characteristics of blackwater rivers are pH values in the range of 4 to 5, low electrical conductivity, and mineral content that's mineral. Minimal. <laughs> that was great. Mineral content that's mineral. So dissolved minerals like calcium, magnesium, potassium, and sodium are negligible. And with these low amounts of dissolved minerals come unique challenges for the animals who reside in these systems, such as osmoregulation. So how do fishes survive and thrive in these rather extreme habitats? Well, it's long been known that fishes are well adapted to these natural habitats, particularly the more extreme ones, because they have made physiological adaptations to overcome this, the problems caused by this water that we would think would be hostile to most life forms. This was borne out recently in a study of the Cardinal Tetra. Lab results suggested that humic substances present in the water and the ecosystems protect Cardinal Tetras in the soft acidic water in which they reside by preventing excessive sodium loss and stimulating calcium uptake, which ensures proper homeostasis. Again, where do these humic substances come from? They come from, in our case, in the aquarium, they come from dissolved botanical materials. They also do come from substrates. But this is pretty extraordinary because the humic substances found in the water actually enable the fishes to survive in this highly acidic water, which is devoid of much mineral content that's typically needed for them to survive in. And of course, botanicals, leaves, and wood typically have an abundance of these humic substances, right? They're useful for more than just interesting and unique aquascaping effects. There's a lot of room for research about influencing the overall environment in our aquariums here. And I think we barely scratched the surface of the potential for utilizing botanicals in our aquarium and for the benefits that they bring. This is just another one of those sort of foundational topics of the natural style of aquarium that we espouse. The understanding that processes like decomposition and physical transformation of the materials that we utilize in our tanks are normal, expected, and beautiful things require us to make these mental shifts. Botanical materials don't have nearly as much impact on the water parameters other than, say, conductivity and dissolved oxygen as the soils do. And that's another sort of disconnect between the aquarium and the, uh, the natural world. These waters have high concentrations of these humic and fulvic acids derived from sandy, 
hydromorphic podzols, which is the type of soil that are prevalent in the region. However, these allochthonous materials, the leaves, the, the seed pods, etc., have huge impact on the ecology of these systems. So leaf litter, as one might suspect, is of huge importance in these ecosystems, especially in smaller tributaries. In one study which I came across, it was concluded that the smaller the stream, the more dependent the biotia is on leaf litter habitats and allochthonous energy directly derived from the forest. That's really interesting. From the same study, it was concluded that the substrate of the aquatic habitat had a significant influence on the feeding habits of the fishes which resided in there. So for example, the biomass of allochthonous insectivores increased in areas that had a higher percentage of sandy bottom substrate. Detritivorous insectivore biomass, in contrast, increased significantly in areas with a higher percentage of leaf substrate. And just general insectivores, again, these are fishes that eat insects if you haven't gathered, tend to increase in streams with higher proportions of leafy substrate as well. So what's this implication for us as hobbyists? Well, for one thing, we can set up benthic environments in our tanks to represent the appropriate environment for the fishes which we want to keep in them. It's simple as that. It's as much a function, uh, it's as much about function actually, as it is about anything else, and about pushing into some new directions. The sort of unorthodox aesthetics of these aquariums that we play with just happen to be an interesting byproduct of their function. Personally, I think that every botanical style aquarium can benefit from the presence of leaves. As we've discussed to the point where we're probably sick of hearing it, leaves are literally the operating system of many natural habitats, ecology-wise, and they perform a similar role in the aquarium. The presence of botanical materials like leaves in these aquatic habitats is really fundamental. Leaves and other botanicals are extremely pervasive in just about every type of aquatic habitat, aren't they? In tropical species of leaves, the leaf drop is really important to the surrounding environment. The nutrients, as we discussed before, are bound up in the leaves typically. So a regular release of leaves by the trees helps replenish the minerals and nutrients which are typically depleted from eons of leaching into the surrounding forests. Now, interestingly enough, most tropical forest trees are classified as evergreens and don't have a specific seasonal leaf drop like deciduous trees that many of us are more familiar with. Rather, they replace their leaves gradually throughout the year as the leaves age and subsequently fall off the trees. Again, what's the implication here? Well, there's more or less a continuous supply of leaves falling into the jungles and waterways in these habitats, which is why you'll see leaves at various stages of decomposition in these tropical streams. It's also why leaf litter banks may be almost permanent structures within some of these bodies of water, which I think is really interesting. They're actually part of the underwater topography. Our botanical style aquariums are not set and forget systems, right? They require some basic maintenance, water exchanges, water testing, filter media replacement, stuff like that, like any other aquarium. They do have one unique requirement as part of their ongoing maintenance, which other types of aquariums seem to not have the topping off, so to speak, of botanicals and leaves as they break down. This topping off accomplishes a number of things. First, it creates a certain degree of environmental continuity, keeping things consistent from a botanical capacity standpoint. Over time, you have the opportunity to establish a baseline of water parameters, knowing how many of what to add and to keep things more or less consistent, which could make the regular topping off of botanicals a bit more of a science in addition to just being an art. In addition, it keeps a constant aesthetic vibe in your aquarium. Consistent in that you can keep some sort of look that you have while maintaining subtle or even less than subtle enhancements as they're required. And of course, 
The topping off of botanicals helps you more intimately stay in touch with your aquarium, much the same way a plant to take enthusiast would by trimming plants or a reefer would while making frags of colonies that are getting too large. When you're actively involved in the operation of your aquarium, you simply notice more. You can also learn more. You can appreciate the subtle yet obvious changes that arise on an almost daily basis in our botanical style aquariums. I dare say that one of the things I enjoy the most with my blackwater and botanical style aquariums, besides just looking at them, is that topping off of botanical supplies from time to time. I feel that it not only gives me a sense of actively participating in the aquarium, it provides a sense that you're doing something that nature's done for eons, something very primal and essential. Even the preparation process is sort of engaging. Think about the materials which accumulate in natural aquatic habitats and how they actually end up in them. And it makes you think about this in a very different context, a more holistic context that can make your experience that much more rewarding. Again, botanicals should be viewed as consumables in our hobby, much like activated carbon or filter pads or whatever. They simply don't last indefinitely. Many seed pods and similar botanicals contain a substance known as lignin. Now, lignin is defined as a group of organic polymers, which are essentially the structural materials which support the tissues of vascular plants. They're common in bark, they're common in wood, and yeah, seed pods. And they provide protection from rotting and some structural rigidity. In other words, they make seed pods kind of tough, yet not permanent. That being said, they are typically broken down by fungi and bacteria in aquatic environments. And inputs of terrestrial materials like leaf litter and seed pods into aquatic habitats can leach dissolved organic carbon, rich in lignin and cellulose, into the water. Factors like light intensity, mineral hardness, and composition of the aforementioned bacterial and fungal community all affect the degree to which this material is broken down into its constituent parts in this environment. Hmm, something we've kind of known for a while in the hobby, right? So yeah, lignin, interestingly enough, is a major component of the stuff that's leached into our aquatic environments, along with that other big player, tannin. Tannins, according to chemists, are a group of astringent biomolecules that bind to and precipitate proteins and other organic compounds. They're in almost every plant around, and they're thought to play a role in protecting the plants from predation and potentially aiding in their growth. As you might imagine, they're super abundant in leaves. <laughs> it's thought that tannins comprise as much as 50% of the dry weight of leaves. Wow, that's interesting. And of course, tannins in leaves, wood, soils, and plant materials tend to be highly water-soluble, creating our beloved black water as they decompose. As the tannins leach into the water, they create that transparent yet darkly stained water that we love so much. Uh, to get not too confusing, in simple, simplified terms, black water tends to occur when the rate of what they call carbon fixation, i.e. photosynthesis, and its partial decay to soluble organic acids exceeds its rate of complete decay to carbon dioxide, also known as oxidation. It's an interesting balance. Chew on that for a bit. Try to really wrap your head on that. And sometimes the research you do on these topics can really unlock some interesting tangential information, which you can apply to your aquarium work. Here's another interesting tidbit from science. For those of you weirdos who like using wood leaves and such in your aquariums, but hate the brown water, yeah, there's a few of you out there, you can add baking soda to the water that you soak your wood in and such to accelerate the leaching process. Why? More alkaline solutions tend to draw out tannic acid from wood than pH neutral or acidic water does. Or you can simply keep using your, you know, 8.4 pH tap water. So some armchair speculation I have, this might be a good answer as to why some people just can't seem to get that super dark color that they want for the long term. If you have more alkaline water, those tannins are being quickly pulled out. 
So you might get an initial burst, but the color just won't last that long. I think just having a bit of more than a superficial understanding of the way botanicals and other materials interact with the aquatic environment and how we can embrace and replicate these systems in our own aquariums is really important to the hobby. The real message here is to not be afraid of learning about seemingly complex and chemical and biological nuances in blackwater systems and apply some of this thinking and this knowledge to our aquarium practice. It can seem a bit intimidating at first and there's a lot of you know, words and things that are very confusing. And maybe some of the thinking even seems a bit contrarium to a, a conventional aquarium practice. But if you force yourself beyond just the basic hobby-oriented material out there on these topics, hint, once again, there aren't many, there's literally a whole world of stuff you can learn about. And it starts by simply looking at nature as an overall inspiration. Wondering why the aquatic habitats we're looking at appear the way they do, and wondering what processes create them. And rather than editing out the so-called undesirable elements, we embrace as many of these elements as possible, trying to figure out what benefits they bring and how we can recreate them functionally in our closed aquarium systems. There's no flaws in nature's work because nature doesn't seem seek you know, to satisfy observers. Nature seeks only to evolve and change and grow. It looks the way it does because it's the sum total of the processes which occur to foster life and evolution. I know I'm getting a little deep here, but... We as hobbyists need to understand this. We need to evolve and change and grow ourselves. We need to let go of our long-held beliefs about what is truly considered beautiful in the hobby. We need to study and understand the, I don't know, the elegant way nature does things and just why natural aquatic habitats look the way they do. To look at things in context, to understand what kinds of outside influences, pressures, and threats these habitats face. And when we attempt to replicate these functions in our aquariums, we're helping to grow this unique segment of the aquarium hobby. Please make that effort to continue to educate yourself and get really smart about this stuff and to share what you learn on your journey there. All of it, good and the occasional bad, helps the hobby grow, fosters a viable movement, and helps your fellow hobbyists. Now, I know we dashed into a lot of different directions today in sort of a crazy, frenetic way as we just always seem to when I start talking, but I hope this opens you up to some thinking about some different topics, maybe ideas that you haven't really fully fleshed out before and you want to research them more and, and find out some things that could benefit the hobby. It's pretty cool. And I really hope that you uh, continue to jump in and research and learn and grow. Stay studious, stay thoughtful, stay inquisitive, stay creative, stay engaged, and always stay wet. Until next time, this is Scott Fellman from Tannin Aquatics. Thanks for spending part of your day with me, and I look forward to seeing you on the next installment of The Tint.